This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. Seventy years on from VE Day, how did the Second World War change the world? Defence's grand strategy, what's in store for the next 70 years? And how dynamic Mongoose is taking the North Sea by storm? The exercise is um, an anti-submarine uh, warfare exercise to enhance the skills in anti-submarine warfare training. It's 70 years ago today that Germany signed an unconditional surrender, ending six years of war in Europe. VE Day commemorations include a service of remembrance which will begin at 3pm, the time Winston Churchill broadcast to the nation that the war in Europe was over. So what's happened since 1945 and how much did post-war arrangements and agreements shape the way the world looks today? Well, I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and, as usual, by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. So, Professor Paul Rogers, today is the day that Germany signed that surrender. The commemorations are tomorrow. Just, just talk about what happened in the aftermath of the end of the war in Europe. Well, one of the important things was it led almost immediately to a new rivalry between primarily the Soviet Union uh, and the Western states, principally the United States. And in a way, although they'd been allies during the course of the war, that was something of a marriage of convenience. Then it returned to the real intense competition that you had in the 1930s. What added to it was a perception on the Soviet side that the threat to their security would be Germany because of the huge losses they suffered in what they called for many years the Great Patriotic War. And I think what they were mostly concerned about was to have Germany as weak and divided as possible in the long term. From the NATO perspective, NATO was formed certainly a few years later, the Western perception was that Germany must be allowed to rebuild. And that, in a sense, was one of the factors which led to the Soviet Union getting influence in Eastern Europe and really the start of the whole of the Cold War era. What do you think, Christopher, has most impacted on us today in the aftermath of the Second World War? I think the first thing is, that, is, that, is, I suppose, the war itself. There were 60 million people killed or wounded in that war. Uh, 20 million of them were soldiers. Ignore the Navy for the moment, the RAF and other air forces. 40 uh, million were civilians. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when we came out of that war, we were aware of Hiroshima and what a nuclear weapon could do. And for me, the the distance between now and or, or then and now was in April April 1949 with the formation of NATO and showing that there was still this division of, of Europe Warsaw Pact wasn't, uh, didn't come about until the 1950s and it came about just after uh, the first Sputnik, the first satellite went up by the Russians on the 3rd of October 1957 uh, that was the start of intercontinental ballistic missilery. You could actually do that, and so those were the sort of the big was the formation of the of the Warsaw Pact uh, and NATO. Uh, missilery meant you were in space and you could do anything anything after that. And then the near misses, or perhaps the scary stories like in '63 with the with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we thought we might be going to nuclear war. Those were the big events. The rest of it sort of took case, took care of itself along the way. 
but those to when you, to when my you mind, say took care of itself along the way, what what kind of things are you talking about? I suppose, well, I mean, for example, the, the conflicts in, in, in Europe, 1956, for example, when, when the Russians went into Hungary, somehow there was, we proved then, that unless you were going to go to war again, there was nothing you could do about it. I get the same sense of, you know, when Ukrainian, the Ukrainian crisis last year, we could feel very bad, bad about it, but there was actually nothing we could actually do about it. And then we sat through this whole crisis of of different leaders. In 53, Stalin died, and we thought that's the end of that form of communism. And then you had the whole mix-up until you got to Khrushchev, and it was Khrushchev who got involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But we could handle these things. And it was almost as if you had these two superpowerdoms uh, which facing each each other uh, right until a point in October 1986, when by that time President Reagan thought that he could have a Star Wars program, and Gorbachev, the, the Soviet leader, went to see him in Reykjavik, and he said to him, we could have a big agreement on nuclear missiles if you give up the Strategic Defense Initiative. And but Reagan said no, and that was another landmark. We knew he couldn't do it, and that was the beginning of some people thought the end of the Soviet Union. Professor Paul Rogers, how stable do you think Europe is today compared to those post-war years? Well, if we look broadly at Western Europe and extending it more or less um, to the old Soviet Union, it is probably a lot more stable. And I think one of the things is that the founding people behind the idea of European unity, uh, Monet, Schumann and the rest, back in the late 1940s and early 50s, although they were concerned with economic integration at a small scale, they had a long-term vision of maybe half a century in which you would get sufficient economic integration in Europe to involve political integration and decreasing the risk of what they had seen as two European civil wars. And to that extent, whatever you think about the European Union, its bureaucracy and the rest, there is greater stability. The tensions, of course, have arisen more recently with Putin's Russia and what has happened over Ukraine, and those are not easily going to go away. And in a sense, you still have the view from Russia that it is NATO and the European Union which is encroaching on what it calls its near abroad. And that, I think, is quite problematic uh, from both perspectives. And Putin plays this nationalist card very well and consistently. So to that extent, we may have greater stability. That not, does not mean we're not without dangers. If looking at it from the sort of parochial, the British point of view, is another aspect of this, isn't there, Paul? Mm. And that is, if you look at the people in British politics who uh, pushed to get Britain into the EU... Yes. All of them were sitting there with military crosses, DSOs, etc. They had witnessed what war could do to Europe, and they didn't want it again, and they saw the European Union as ex-soldiers, ex-sailors. They saw it as, as a way out of this. I think that's absolutely true, and of course one of the things is that generation of political leaders has, has passed very largely, and we don't have that kind of collective memory among the current political leaders. So that's the past 70 years. What will happen next? This week the Royal United Services Institute released a paper stating that Britain should retain the long-standing grand strategy as the cornerstone for future defence. The paper was written by Professor Malcolm Chalmers, who joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Professor Chalmers. Um, first of all, just explain the grand strategy. What is it exactly? This is perhaps a very grand way of describing things, but I think it's, it's basically saying that the fundamentals of British foreign and defence policy have actually remained pretty steady since that settlement at the end of World War II, which your other 
two contributors have been discussing because at that time we set up the institutions like the United Nations, NATO and not long afterwards the European community which really are remain the bedrock of our foreign policy today and it's a big difference from where the UK was before World War II because before World War II we were not only an imperial power, we also were a nationalist power. We didn't rely on allies for our security. We we tried to maintain our security by ourselves, and any alliances we had were pretty temporary affairs. And what but, you've done with this paper is you've been looking ahead to how Britain yes. must envisage its future and the part that it must play in its own security and in the world. And what have you actually concluded? Well, I think we, we are in a position at the moment where the uncertainties, the, the potential dangers facing Europe and the UK are greater than they have been for some time, both in Europe's east and indeed in the, the meltdown across much of the Arab world. But our confidence in our ability to tackle those is less than it's been for some time. And we can only, but we can only tackle those uh, in partnership with others, with our European partners and with uh, the United States. And uh, that means, I think, uh, as I've said in the paper, holding our nerve, uh, realising the particular strengths we have, but also putting even more emphasis, if we can, on partnership, on acting together. If you look at Russia and Ukraine, for example, there clearly was no military uh, answer to what happened in Ukraine, but there have been quite significant economic sanctions uh, which are making a difference, I think, and that those were only possible through unity in the European Union. You, you talk about this kind of loss of confidence in dealing with things like Islamic State. Do you think that Britain's suffering a kind of identity crisis at the moment in what kind of role it should be playing on the world stage? I think it is. I think uh, that's partly because of the lack of success in Iraq and Afghanistan, those long, expensive missions haven't delivered the results which uh, were promised. Uh, and again, we've seen in Libya the, the strategic failure there after the NATO intervention. But it's also because we have these two particular crises in the UK, which other European countries don't have. We have, clearly have the Scottish issue, the, the continuing relevance of, of that debate about separation. And of course, we have the debate about whether the UK should remain a member of the European Union or not, which mm. has undoubtedly reduced uh, Britain's uh, influence uh, within the European Union uh, quite considerably. So those two particular British phenomena, together with the, the lack of success in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I think has led precisely to a crisis of confidence. Christopher Lee. Until the United Kingdom, which is taking on from what Malcolm Chalmers is saying, until the United Kingdom actually sort of sits down and says, what do we want to do for the next 25 years? Because you can't make policy just for five years or ten years. Next 25 years. Then it goes along to the MODC and says, OK, that's our policy. Can you back us up on what do you need to do it? We can't actually get what we want to get, what we need to get, what all, everybody needs, and that's a coherent service system. Of, of whether it be military equipment, how the, how the forces are shaped. And then you have to go to NATO and say, look, NATO, you've, you've got to do this sort of thing. And when uh, 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 Malcolm Kors talks about the burden sharing in, in NATO, it's so important to remember, you don't all have to do the same thing. And so when everybody says, well, NATO has got to have 2% uh, GDP spending, you don't necessarily have to do that. You've got to say, we will take part in all sorts of things and we will help out where we can. And therefore, you get the forces that you actually need 
need to do it. And when you look, for example, at go back into the uh, uh, Second World War, there were some 50 nations involved who lost people in, in that Second World War. Some of them actually didn't seem to do anything, but as a consequence of the war, they suffered. And that is exactly the, the long-term strategy document that is needed so very, very much in this country. Professor Malcolm Chalmers, is there more room for different NATO allies to work together? More, I suppose you're talking about interoperability, are you, and sort of helping each other out where, they, where they've got the capabilities? Yeah, I, I think that that's a critically important. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that happened after the end of the Cold War is the number of NATO member states which were making a serious contribution declined because most NATO member states are primarily interested in Europe rather than uh, projection outside Europe. But with the return of concerns about Russia, we are seeing countries like Germany and indeed Poland and the Baltic Republics making a more significant contribution because it concerns their neighbourhood. And I think that does mean uh, that a, a, a period in which the UK was really the, by far the most active of the European powers in military terms, it's perhaps, uh, right. we've moved a bit beyond that. There's going to be more of a division of okay. labour between the major European powers. OK, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, thank you very much for your time today. GFBS SIPREP. Meanwhile, more than 16,000 troops, 200 vehicles and more than 140 military aircraft will be on display in Red Square in Moscow on Saturday for the annual victory parade. But it will be snubbed by Western leaders in protest at the Russian military's involvement in the war in Ukraine. Joining us now is Mary Dejewski from The Independent. Good to speak to you today, Mary. Quite a delicate situation for the Russians, with some countries' leaders preferring to attend VE Day celebrations in Poland rather than going to Moscow. Yes, I think it's um, it's been hugely complicated. There was a sort of knee-jerk reaction from Western leaders to say, well, how could they possibly appear on a podium on Red Square at a military parade at a time when there was fighting still going on in Ukraine? Um, the extent of fighting now is less than it was when that decision was taken. Um, and I think in some ways it's unfortunate that Western leaders are not going to Moscow, even if their decision to stay away from the parade is understandable. Why do you think it's unfortunate? Because I think the significance of the anniversary for Russians is so colossal. It's sort of sacrosanct in the... It was in Soviet days and it still is in Russian days. It's one of the, it's one of the commemorations which has actually made the transition from the Soviet period across to the Russian period intact. And the reason for that is in part because the the experience of the Second World War, the colossal losses, more than 20, 25 million um, Russians and um, Soviet citizens were lost during that war. And it's a sort of it's a sort of sacred occasion in Russia, and it still is. And there is a widespread view in Russia that says that the rest of Europe really has never appreciated what they say, you know, the sacrifice that Russia made in essence for the freedom of Europe. And so they're taking the, you know, what is really essentially a boycott, though it's not been announced as such, they're taking that quite hard. Christopher, do you think that's fair, that kind of interpretation? I do. You've got to remember what the um, what the, uh, the Soviet Union called uh, originally the Great Patriotic War. 
if you don't understand that Putin's history, sense of history, let's say, starts there and continues, and this is a history where, as Mary was saying, all those people that were killed, that represented nearly 25% of the then USSR were killed or wounded. And so, unless you understand that point, that that's where Putin's history starts, and unless you get alongside him, take this opportunity to do so, then you're not going to begin to understand how to, how to deal with Putin in the future. Mary, do you think it's actually going to have much impact on relations between Russia and the West at the moment, though? Well, it's hard to see how things could actually get much worse um, because with the tension over Ukraine, the sanctions which are threatened to be increased rather than scaled back, um, it is, it, it's difficult to see that. But I would look at it the other way round and say that I think maybe an opportunity is being lost here. Um, as I say, I don't expect that it would, would really have been wise or feasible for Western leaders to appear on the podium at a military parade. But I do think that going to Moscow, um, laying wreaths, as I think Angela Merkel is going to do the day after, um, that, and engaging in talks which could open to something else um, to at least express an awareness of the significance of this anniversary for Russia as well as for the rest of Europe. I think that's an opportunity missed. Of course, uh, you mentioned not being on the podium at the parade. Let's just talk briefly about the parade itself. Moscow knows the world will be watching. What's likely to be on display? Well, I gather that um, they're going to um, show on their parade um, at least one and possibly three different types of military hardware, including um, some sort of quite modern armoured vehicle. Now, this will, in a way, be... It'll be exhibiting... Um, Putin has tried to modernise the Russian armed forces and this has been met of course with a, with, a, with a sort of dusty response from the West which talks about it remilitarizing. but actually Russia had done hardly any modernization through the last days of the Soviet Union and the parlous state of its armed forces was demonstrated really to, to what Russia felt was its shame um, during the brief fighting in Georgia um, and that was a sort of um, and gave the impetus for um, quite a lot of investment, specifically in technology and hardware. Christopher, is there going to be muscle flexing during that parade? It's going to be very much mu muscle uh, flexing. I mean, last year, uh, President Putin was talking about the priority of our state policy is now to improve the, uh, improve the military. And for these sort of military anoraks, otherwise known as military attaches, who will be around there, uh, let's let's get a list of the the top three. There's uh, uh, as Mary says, there's the new tank, which is the T14, uh, which is the Amata. It is probably the most modern uh, or, or most revolutionary form of tank that the Russians have ever produced. They are existing at the moment in a thing called the T90. The T14 is something everybody wants to see. It's got it's got new type of uh, sandwich armor. Uh, instead of having a you know usual sort of CSM guy sitting on the top of the turret and guiding the whole thing, no, the crew works in a capsule in the forward part of it. They can fly missiles as well. It's also got the uh, the RS24, which is the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. They're going to be on the parade. And also a new form of surface-to-air missile, the, um, the S400. Mary Dijewski, where will you be? during this parade and during these commemorations? <laughs> well, this year, I think I'll probably be sitting in front of my own television safe, mm. at a safe distance in London. Um, 
the time was when it was the absolute compulsory appearance for Western correspondents when I was based in Moscow across the end of the Soviet Union and the the um, overthrow of the of the Soviet regime. Um, I would have been watching from Red Square or from the periphery of Red mm. Square and doing exactly what Christopher's been talking about, you know, noting down the sort of military <laughs> hardware. We were all briefed in advance on what to expect. That was Mary Lijewski from The Independent. NATO has kicked off its biggest anti-submarine warfare exercise. Dynamic Mongoose is taking place in the North Sea and we'll see 10 allied nations, including the UK and NATO partner Sweden, with almost 20 surface vessels and submarines working together. Four submarines, 13 ships, 11 countries, two weeks. Commodore Ole Sandquist is overseeing the exercise. Dynamic Mongoose will take part on the western coast of Norway for the next 10 to 14 days. The exercise is uh, an anti-submarine warfare exercise where the main aim is to train the surface force uh, along with um, uh, MPA and helicopters and of course submarines to enhance the skills in anti-submarine warfare training. Well, Professor Paul Rogers is still with us. Um, Big exercise, this, Paul. is an important one. It is. I mean, it's actually an annual exercise, but this one is on a much larger scale than normal. Um, The curious thing is that, uh, you know, the the people in charge of it say it it is not intended to send a message to any particular country. I think that's a direct... suppose it does, though, does it? (laughs) That was a direct quote from the American journal, Stiles and Strikes. (laughs) Of course it does, and and it's intended to do that, which doesn't help in a way... But it's clear that um, that Putin's Russia does like to push things and show that it is still something of a power to be reckoned with. And mm-hmm. this is this is NATO's way of responding. It's also is concerned with very some very important gaps. I mean. Britain essentially doesn't really have any maritime, airborne maritime surveillance capability ever since the old Nimrod went out and we haven't replaced it. So there's sort of big gaps in a mm-hmm. sense. So even at that level, it's significant. But I'm afraid it is one more part of this um, trend which is leading to much more suspicion on both sides of what, you know, 30 years ago was called the Iron Curtain. And Christopher, is there anything to do with this sub spot off the Spanish coast recently? Um, it's, it's an example, isn't it? It, that, they, that they, everybody in NATO would say, oh, well, you know, the Russians are sending in uh, submarines to do probing jobs on Helsinki or the Baltic or whatever. The sort of thing that everybody in NATO is doing is sending in submarines to sort of sort of see how the Russians or anybody else reacts. But it's interesting... Do you think it just makes a good newspaper story, then? I think it makes more than that. It, it gets people... They try and wind each other up, and, in fact, they then take it along to their various ministries and say, look, this, this is what we've got to have. There used to be a point, for example, in the 1970s, when it was no British admiral worth his salt uh, who wouldn't get up and say, there are only six 15-inch guns left in the Navy and the mm. Russians have got more frigates coming out this year. And then everybody w- rushed across to the Treasury and said, hey, see what this, what's happening? We're under threat. But it's interesting, and Paul was making that point about uh, uh, the Nimrods. Uh, the Shackleton's Nimrods used to drop in patterns uh, what being called hydrophones. Uh, and these would, listening out, listening out for Russian submarine movements, that doesn't happen in that way uh, anymore. And that's why it's a combined ASW exercise is so important. Well, there's another big exercise taking place this week involving two Yorks alongside NATO troops from countries including the US and Holland. Simon Newton is in Estonia. I asked him to tell me more. Well, I'm in a huge expanse of uh, woodland about 45 kilometres from the uh, Russian border near an Estonian town called 
Yobi, I'm here with Second um, Battalion Regiment, uh, who are normally based in Cyprus, but they're here at uh, a company strength, about 115 or so men uh, have come over to take part in this exercise. Now, the British uh, force here is uh, going to uh, go on this exercise, exercise steel, which begins at the weekend, alongside the troops from uh, the US, from the Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, uh, Germany, Latvia, and Lithuania. This is the biggest exercise to take place here in Estonia since the end of the Cold War. And essentially what it's to do is to test the ability of the Estonian uh, army, um, their reservists in particular, uh, because they do have a conscript army and a reserve army, um, to defend themselves uh, from an attack from uh, from the east. Um, so over the next few days, uh, these British soldiers will play the part of the enemy, probing and attacking those Estonian soldiers inside this huge area of forest. And Simon, what's the mood like there? Well, for many of these troops, this is the first time they've uh, been back in this sort of environment in woodland, going through this, these sorts of drills, operating woodlands and forests for many years. Obviously, the British Army has been in this Afghan mode for the past decade or so. This is to do with the. This is very much to do with the move from that Afghan focus to more conventional warfare. Uh, so they are doing very different things than they would have done uh, in FOBs, for instance, in Afghanistan. And today we've seen them practicing attacking some defensive positions in this woodland. And just to describe you, this is very, very dense woodland. The trees are uh, just, uh, just a few feet apart, uh, very difficult to move, very difficult to communicate, to see the enemy and find them. So it's a real test of their, of their soldiering skills ahead of this big NATO exercise, which I say begins uh, at the weekend. Simon Newton, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. As we mentioned at the start of the programme, tomorrow we'll see the 70th anniversary of VE Day. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers is still with us. How important is it tomorrow that we remember what happened 70 years ago? I think it's very important, not least because some of the discussions we had at the start of this programme, particularly what Christopher was saying about the huge costs, you know, 60 million people plus killed. And as he said, although maybe nearly a third of those were military, the great majority were civilian. It was the first of the huge civilian casualty wars, unlike the First World War. Mm. And also what we were discussing earlier on, the way it shaped so much the post-Cold War, the post-war world, including the start of the Cold War. And, and of course this year, the anniversary particularly poignant because many of those who remember victory in Europe are now in their 90s. It may be their last commemorations. Christopher, how do we keep those memories alive for future generations? I don't think you keep those memories alive for future generations. I think it's far more... I mean, we, we have this commemoration services and every five years you seem to get one. But the point is, I think what happens, as we've just been talking about, what happens to your relationship, for example, with Putin's Russia, those are the sort of things that keep this alive rather than an artificial uh, ceremonial uh, occasion. Don't forget, we were saying Putin's history of the world starts with the Great Patriotic War at the time when he believes that Russia actually won the war for Europe and mm. therefore the Western world. Fifty countries took part. Russia feels that people don't understand that they're part. And then you get into the whole psyche of what Russia feels, what Putin feels, what we feel about uh, Russia. It's an ongoing suggestion that we might never forget because each day we have a, a, an ideal that we have to live up to. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, to all our other guests this week on SITREP. We'll leave you now with the memories of some of the people who experienced that momentous day in world history.
in the evening when we landed in Brussels and they were all dancing and everybody was happy pubs and all the cafes were all doing very well troops and seats outside everybody was enjoying themselves we all went and uh, the Dutch people came out and invited us into their houses and we were carrying bottles of rum yeah. They finished up drunk. <laughs> yeah. It was a bit of shock at first because, of course, when you think of the way we get news today, uh, we had none of that. I mean, some of the, the uh, wives uh, hadn't heard from their husbands for, for months and months, and some that were prisoners of war hadn't heard for years. And uh, then we didn't get the news like we get today. So. It was, well, do you think it's right? And who told you and that sort of thing? We drove into Brussels and we celebrated in the streets with all the rest of the army in their jeeps and tanks that were going through the streets and the people were throwing flowers at us and bottles of wine and cakes and people were singing all their national anthems, the Flemish and the Belgian and the Dutch, all of them were singing and singing. And finally, at midnight, we all turned back home and we collapsed because we'd had a very, very long day. News. News. Sports, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.